Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Today, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the All of Us Research Project, the big NIH-funded uh, project that is uh, creating a database of genomic plus health history information, uh, a million people strong, so an enormous project. And from the very beginning, the project had two goals. One was to create a very diverse resource, something we haven't had. Uh, anybody who works in genomics knows one of the problems we have in this uh, in this field is that our databases are not at all diverse in terms of people's populations of origin. We really need to do something about that. So that was one goal for this project. And the other was that from the beginning, there was an intention to provide results back to participants. So if you go to the FAQs on all of us research projects, so why should you participate? One thing is altruistically help move pre precision medicine along. The other is learn more about your health. And in fact, I looked this morning and it says the longer you stay involved with all of us, the more you can learn about yourself and help speed up health research and medical breakthroughs. So apparently, in addition to offering some results back, there's a sense in which more things will be offered back over time. So in order to help us understand more about this area, which I think is very intriguing to genetics professionals, what are they planning to give back and how are they going to do it? Um, I'm joined here by Louise Beer. Louise Beer is Assistant Professor of Genetic Counseling at the Institute for Gen Genomic Medicine at Columbia University. And Columbia University is one of the partner institutions that is involved with, am I getting this right, Louise, involved with finding and um, enrolling the sample for all of us. Yep, that's right. So um, Columbia University is part of um, the New York City Consortium uh, in the All of Us Research Program. Um, so that's Columbia, Weill Cornell Medicine, and Harlem Hospital, um, along with New York Presbyterian Hospital. And so uh, in addition to all of the other enrollment centers all across the country, we are working in New York City to enroll almost 100,000 of those 1 million people into the All of Us Research Program. Yay, go New York. Sorry, Sorry a little <laughs> partisan outburst. It's a, it's a... Apologize for my partisan outburst. Um, okay. No so, problem. So I, I, I know that we are alternately concerned and interested, fascinated by this idea of taking a giant project like that and giving back results. And I, I think there was a commitment to that uh, philosophically there wasn't any consensus or understanding about what did that mean, give back results. So you've been involved with those discussions right along, correct? Yep, yep. So we've been involved um, with the program since 2016, um, and we're, we're still, obviously still involved. But you're exactly right that, you know, one of the kind of bedrock principles of the program was was that information would be returned back to participants. You know, they're, they're donating so much of their time and their, you know, biological specimens and personal information and um, to make it kind of this truly reciprocal 
relationships, the, the program has a baseline commitment to return as much information as possible back to participants. Um, and obviously, now we're getting into kind of the, the gritty details of, okay, what exactly does that mean? And what does that look like for all of the different types of information that could be generated through the program? So there's like two, well, it's sort of two, uh, two first and then a third big questions, um, which mm-hmm. I have for you. One is what gets mm-hmm. returned and how do you do it, right? Like how is that done? Is it done with genetic counseling? Is it not done with genetic counseling and so forth? I guess my, my third question, which we'll try and get to is, is, is when, because I, I think the answer you're going to tell me is that this is going to happen in some layers, right? Definitely. Definitely. So the first question about, you know, what gets returned. So, and first of all, the, the questions that you've asked are exactly what we hear, you know, every day from the people that we're discussing enrollment with. So these are common questions and um, it's, it's not just, um, kind of the scientists who are thinking about this, but, you know, everyone who's considering enrollment um, kind of asks these same things. So the first question about what will get returned um, is, is kind of a frustratingly vague answer, which is that we can't predict exactly everything that might be returned over the course of the 10-year program, 10-plus year program. Um, you know, as more and more research is done, as more um, investigators uh, generate more data, that is going to um, introduce new opportunities for additional information to be returned. So Louise, Louise now, where are you reason, starting? Uh-huh, where are you uh-huh. starting? Are you, is, it, is it ACMG yeah. 59? Am I allowed to use ACMG 59 as a phrase? Because this is ACMG just like trademarked its phrase and said it can't be used for population studies. And this is surely a population That's study. Right. Yes. So, so the first, yes, the first kind of general um, return of results that the program is tackling is around, okay, genetic information. You know, we're going to start generating that information um, in, you know, the coming months. And so that really will be the first types of results that we're starting to So ACMG, if you're listening, if you're listening, I'm not saying ACMG, I'm not using your name. If you're listening, we're not using your name, but is there going to be like, are you going to start with, let's say like 60 genes? Yes. (laughs) Is that a good sort of roundabout guess of where you're starting? Round estimate. Yeah. And so the, the, all of us, um, program is developing kind of their list of an all of us, you know, medically actionable panel um, of results, which, you know, is going to be uh, incorporating those, the, the information and kind of standards that ACMG has laid out on the clinical side and using that um, as kind of similar guardrails um, for what the program would be returning. Um, and so those, those medically actionable types as uh, results are indeed going to be something that's going to be returned. I think the the case for why that is valuable information to people is, you know, kind of readily apparent. It's already um, something that's implemented when people have clinical exomes done. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's not that big of a leap to say, okay, what's, if it's justified on the clinical side um, and has, 
meaningful health information for people on the clinical side, it also could be useful to people if it's generated through a research program. Um, and I would say that, you know, that's also very much in keeping with the spirit and the principle of the program wanting to return information back to participants, especially if that information can have um, an impact on their own health. Um, the second question that you asked was, how is that going to be done? And, you know, this is where this is where implementing something like this on a research on the research side and on such a large scale research program um, is very, very different than how it's handled clinically. So clinically, obviously, a patient already has an established relationship with a physician or a provider, um, a genetic counselor who is ordering a test and prepared to deal with the results that come from that test. On the research side, um, you know, we don't have that kind of one-to-one patient-provider situation. We have research participants, and we have a research infrastructure um, that needs to be able to provide similar appropriate counseling and support when medically actionable variants are returned. Um, And so the way that the program is approaching this um, is to fund a an all of us genetic counseling resource, um, and this is basically going to be a, a centralized uh, group of genetic counselors and um, associated experts who will be able to return medically actionable results to those research participants wherever they are in the country. Um, This is a large undertaking, so there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be built around it, but the program is committed to making sure that that genetic counseling support um, and kind of one-on-one return process is available um, to participants. So so a couple questions. I mean, I I get what you're saying, which is great. So all of these, all of us, 59, get returned or... 62 or 74 or whatever you decide is the number of uh, actionable variants you're comfortable giving back information on for this starting piece Mm -hmm. that gets returned with genetic counseling that will likely be done by phone or by compute some, some, some some technological means, not in person, which makes sense. Is there any backstop for that of like regional network of people, people for whom these individuals can then be referred? Is there is there a provider network that you're working with or expect to be working with so that you, if I'm counseling somebody who's in Michigan and their next step is they need to see an oncologist, is there somebody that you have that you can send them to? Yeah, so that's the other kind of um, large uh, 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 goal and responsibility of that genetic counseling resource is not just to provide the counseling, but to also be able to then point um, participants to their next step to, to kind of put that referral in place so that they have a very clear understanding of where to go next. Um, and so that is part of the infrastructure that they are working to build out right now. Um, I think the good thing is that, you know, a lot of the enrollment um, for the program so far has been done through kind of these um, consortia similar to our New York City group. You know, there's there's other kind of groups of these medical centers affiliated nationwide. And so um, we're kind of already generally recruiting people 
um, from these medical centers. And so then those medical centers will, uh, you know, generally also have expertise or uh, have connections to the um, next steps of, of the appropriate referral sources in their I see. region. Yeah. And so, so, the, so, yeah. And that I just, Oh, I, what, just one more thing, which is that the, the program also, you know, reaches people who are not necessarily in one of those medical center enrollments. There's, there's a method for people to enroll across the country, no matter where they are. And so the, the program really will also have to work to focus to, to expand that referral network beyond just the established medical centers they're already working with. Um, but, you know, I think that the established medical centers in the program so far are a really logical starting point for that network to grow. That makes sense. And uh, I'm just doing some back of the envelope uh, mental math, which, by the way, strains me, Mm -hmm. let me tell you. Uh, But (laughs) I'm thinking, so a million participants, and if you use the figure, the rough figure of like 2% having a positive result of this Mm -hmm. sort, it's like 20,000 mm-hmm. genetic counseling sessions over five years. So let's say yeah. 4,000 yeah. a year. So that's a, that's a pretty mm-hmm. good number of genetic counselors, right? Yeah. yeah. Are, are, who's, who's the hiring entity? I'm, I'm acting like um, <laughs> I, I got people to place in jobs here, you know? Like a, I, I, yeah, I mean, this should, this should be a, a wonderful opportunity for, yeah. for a lot of genetic counselors. Um, so the, the award just recently went to, um, color, yeah, to color, which is, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this is already kind of their established, um, uh, working model. So they, they have done this type of research return both actually they do this both on the clinical side but also in um for for you know smaller scale research studies but so they already have kind of this working model in place Mm -hmm. um and i think with all of the you know different kind of tele-counseling companies that are out there already um, I feel like it's become more and more common for genetic yeah, counselors. No, I, to think that's, I think there's a like lot of comfort time. with it. I just didn't know whether the, whether the, yeah. um, you know, so the Institute for Genetic Medicine, where you work, employs a number of genetic counselors, but your own genetic counselors will not be the individuals involved with making those telegenetic calls. Yeah, that's right. That's we'll right. All them. of the all of the participants for the program will be handled through color and their, their network of genetic counselors. So in some yeah. sense, when we're talking about these actionable variants, mm-hmm. that's the easy conversation, right? Because as you started off saying, um, there is an understood rationale for giving them out. And while we've never tried to do it at this scale before, there, there are models, uh, um, as you're saying, there are models and there are models for telegenetic counseling to give back this type of research result. But there's other things that have been talked about. Um, one is pharmacogenetic results, which is interesting, and other, other, other layers of results. So the FDA just frowned upon pharmacogenetic results. Does that impact what you're planning to give back? Did that enter into your conversation? So... so um uh, it will have an impact, I imagine. So I will also say that, you know, the, the program is kind of starting with the clearest, um, uh, 
they're, they're, they are rolling out these results in kind of a phased model, um, which I think was the third point that you made a while back. But um, right, we're not going to be able or prepared to return everything all at once. And because this is a new model, a larger scale than what this, than what um, this type of you know return has typically been done with, it is going to take some time to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place to handle it responsibly. Um, there is a desire in the program to return pharmacogenomic results. Um, obviously, anything that the FDA has to say about anything needs to be taken into consideration. <laughs> so, um, so, and so, so you I don't have a plan that. to do, like, well, they just put kind of the kibosh on pharmacogenetic results unless uh, they, they want to see some proof, right? There's a message coming out that the pharmacogenetics game is getting ahead of the evidence base. Is that fair? Uh, you know, and this is, this is me kind of just speaking as myself and not necessarily from, from a programmatic standpoint. Um, but, you know, I do think that, <laughs> I do think that, um, Yes, in some ways, you know, the, there's a lot of um, hope around pharmacogenetics, pharmacogenomics, that it can at some point have a very wide-ranging impact. But right, I think that right now, in some ways, there's a lot more hope than reality. You know, I think that the number of, you know, very clear gene-drug interactions where you can actually make a recommendation about, you know, what someone should be prescribed that's relatively, that's relatively small. Um, yes. I mean, I remember when they were doing the Human Genome Project or in the early days after it was quote unquote finished, when people would ask me, what's a form of genetic testing you have no concerns about? Like that you're, you know, cause I, cause I was always like, oh, but that could go wrong, you know, and um, <laughs> um, about predictive testing and so on. And the example, the back pocket example I'd had, I pulled out. I'm like, pharmacogenetics testing, win-win, makes perfect sense. And it does. And I I think we've all been a little dumbfounded that at this point in time, there isn't more evidence that pharmacogenetic testing, except in, as you're saying, very specific instances, um, is clinically useful. It it just makes sense that it should be. And and yet the evidence isn't there yet. Yeah, I actually, I actually think that, you know, so taking into account kind of whatever ultimately is, you know, permissible under the FDA and, and just based on the the science and the confidence behind it, you know, I do think that um, this could be actually one of the more, uh, you know, disappointing features where, where people are really, um, people have an expectation perhaps that, you know, sequencing and genetics carries a lot more answers than it actually does. Um, And so I I do think that there's probably a bit of a perception gap between, you know, what the general public thinks pharmacogenomics involves and might be able to do and on the actual kind of, you know, clinical recommendation side, how much genetics actually plays into that. So I I think it will be really... um, really interesting to kind of uh, have to deal with that, you know, expectations versus reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not even just the general 
population. I, I think the clinical genetics community, like myself, for so long felt like this was obviously mm-hmm. going to be an area that worked that uh, people overestimate the effectiveness of it right now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I know there are there are already, you know, genetic counselors who experience this kind of in their regular clinical practice of someone kind of having whatever channels done some type of genetic testing, thinking that it was going to provide the answers that they were looking for in terms of, you know, which medication is right for me or why isn't this medication working? And then they they realize that the test that they thought was going to provide the answers for them actually doesn't. And so I think that that's already something that genetic counselors are kind of used to grappling with. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right. So now I'm going to get into the, a couple of the even thornier issues. Okay. okay. We, had, we had a conversation almost a year ago, Louise and I were on a panel, uh, where uh, the whole audience was uh, geneticists, genetic counselors, and so on in the room. And we're, we're having this discussion. And then she said, and also we're going to give back all of their data if they want it, like all of it, like the whole, all of their raw data. And um, I would say that there was a profound effect in the room, wouldn't you, Louise? It was sort of like a kind of a bombshell situation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Definitely. I think, I think people were, 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 people were shocked. People were clutching their pearls. It was, it was, yes, there was, there was a drama. lot of pearl clutching. I was clutching my pearl. If I wore pearls, I know. which I don't, I you would certainly pearls. have been clutching them. Yes. Yes. Um, oh my God. Yeah. So, so is that, uh, is that still the plan? If, if I, if I participate so, in all of us, you know, do I get all of my raw data back and like when? So when I, I can't tell you um, and I can't tell you because the, you know, we're just starting to work on generating the data and um, in terms of any one particular specimen getting sequenced, I can't give a timeline for that. And obviously in order to you know, provide access to that, amount of data requires a lot of um, technical infrastructure and security safeguards that have to be you know, I, should, and I should back up. So, so it's yeah. still, it's still okay. in the plans is what you're saying. It's still in. It's still, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. But it's not. So. Yeah. So it's still in the plans. It's, you know, I, I think that that is, it, this program challenges me over and over again to, um, to see what it looks like to actually put principles into action. And, you know, I think that um, this is seen as keeping with one of the bedrock principles of the program of allowing participants access to information and, and their personal information that's, that's, that they've Contributed. So, so let me ask you. Um, let me ask you a question, which is, goes back also to the to the original for for the data you're giving out now. Uh, when people are being tested now, what what's is it exome sequencing? Is it whole genome sequencing? Is it is it uh, clinical coverage? You know, how, what's the depth? Do you do you have information like that? Um, I don't have that much 
I don't have that much detail, except that the program will be doing um, genotyping and whole genome sequencing. So you're using a, an array and you're doing whole genome sequencing. Right. I assume that's array first and then whole genome sequencing at some later point? Uh, yeah. So I think that they'll um, probably the genotyping will be quicker to um, get going and also quicker to complete. Um, and, you know, the, the genotyping could also then be used for other types of um, information, ancestry, traits, kind of those, those types of uh, genetic, uh, are you giving non-clinical back, are you giving genetic back information. information. I think I remember reading that. Yep, yep. So there will be um, ancestry information as well. Um, good. Can you just tell everybody we're all from Africa and leave it at that? <laughs> that would certainly make things simpler. <laughs> I mean, oh I mean you're gosh. promising I them know. ancestry information, but, but are you promising them when the ancestry information is from? I, I, don't, I don't think we should, you know, I don't think she should validate one moment in time over another. No, um, never mind. You yeah, don't have to so, answer this. Yeah. You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer my 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 like um, passive aggressive attacks on ancestry testing. Don't 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 participate. Okay, thank don't you. don't participate and don't encourage me. Um, thank you. <laughs> so the, you're you're using the arrays to generate validated results on the stuff that you're giving back to begin with. And the full sequence question won't really come up until later on when we have whole genome information and, and then you are going to reconsider that? Is that what I'm understanding? You're going to reconsider at that point? The question of returning raw data or making available raw data to participants? Yes. No, I, I mean, um, the the... My understanding from the program is that raw data will be made available as it becomes available and as the infrastructure is there to support it. Um, I, I don't think that that will change, um, like I said, because this is, this is an attempt from the program to really put those values as this being a reciprocal relationship with participants into action. Um, I, I know that this, you know, is that this is new on this scale. It's very new um, and brings up a lot of questions, but, um, but I think that they're, you know, they're questions that genetics as a whole is going to have to grapple with one way or another. Um, I do think that, you know, this, this program on such a large scale is forcing a lot of these questions to, to a head where we actually have to now grapple with them. I think a lot of these questions have kind of been bubbling around in the genetics community for a long time, and we've been able to kind of, you know, kick the can down the road a little bit, gloss over it, release data sometimes. Um, but not all the time. And, and this is, this program is now kind of making these questions have an urgency to them, mm -hmm. um, in a way that they didn't before. Um, and I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a genetic counselor. 
And I understand the challenges that come with this and the potential risks that come with this. Um, but, you know, this is also something that this is in some ways, it's kind of the same discussion that we have every time there is a new type of technology, a new type of information to be returned. And the way that it has gone in genetics has never been that the information stays contained. That's never, you know, or that the technology stays contained. That's never happened. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's in some ways it's a good thing for this question to be coming up in a large national program that has a lot of people working on it and a lot of people thinking about it um, and people who are familiar with, with genetics and with the potential impact. Um, I think that the answer I think that the answer is not going to be, you know, try to hide this information from people. Um, and so I think that the answer has to be something of, okay, how do we try to put in infrastructure support? Yeah, um, I'm not saying hide reliable people, just, just to, just to, to sort of push back slightly on that. It's also a question mm -hmm. of what is information, so you can say, I am committed to giving back information, um, but mm -hmm. raw data, arguably, is not information because it hasn't been translated into information. And it, it, there's a decision to be made about what is – information implies some, some meaning. You know, it's, it's, it's a stream of um, base pairs is mm -hmm. not information – there's no communication in it until it's interpreted. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not um, asking you to be the sole person oh, to stand and answer this. But but I, I think that part of the question is okay. If we're committed to giving back information, at what stage do we have information to give? And there are definitely people arguing raw data has information contained in it and. They should have the rights to that. But I don't think that's a done deal. I don't think that the society has settled on this idea that every time we do a genetic test, um, people have the right to the results of their test. What are the results? Are the results the actual base pairs? Are the results the, the full variant call set? Are the results the you know variants of interest? Um, that hasn't been hashed out. In our, I think in our minds, I don't think it's been hashed out in the courts. And I do think it's incredibly important that this program is raising the issue. So listen, while we're hitting people's buttons, while we're button pushing, <laughs> let me just push one more button because on the website of all of us, it mentions that uh -huh. they do plan to accept children. I don't think that's happening yet. Am I, am I right? No. No. No, it's not happening yet, and it's not happening yet because of the additional ethical questions that come along with that. Um, so that is that is something the program intends to do because there are pediatric diseases that are important to be studied um, and important to be included in a program like this. But right, there's the, the ethical complications become even trickier 
um, when you add on a pediatric aspect to it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm pushing my own buttons when I argue this way, but it's also the kind of thing that, you know, I can't, I, I think about the, I, I take your point that, you know, the raw data is not interpreted. Um, and that is that, that's not really a result. Um, I do think it's information. Now, is it informative to everybody? No. Um, I imagine that to the majority of people, they probably are not going to be interested in accessing that and doing something with it precisely for that reason, that it's not informative in that way. Um, but you can also imagine that there is, I, I think about the, the situations that could arise where someone would legitimately want access to their raw data because it would be helpful. Somebody develops a unusual disease at some point, you know, after having had sequencing done in whatever context, a research study, a clinical study, um, for something that wasn't evaluated originally. And they want that data so it can be evaluated now in light of new information. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are, there are situations where it is much clearer to, to, to kind of say, okay, yes, that makes sense why if someone would want that raw data, we can see why it's useful. Um, and then, and then I think about the fact that I personally would not want to be the adjudicator of every request and not, not just from a logistical standpoint, but from, uh, from the idea of, okay, what is a reasonable, uh, uh, justification for wanting, for wanting your raw genetic data. So if you're not going to stand as the adjudicator, it means the project either says, no, we don't give this back or yes, we do. Well, I'm, I mean, Right. It's kind of like, okay, is there, and, and this is, this is very much kind of a philosophical and ethical question, but do you want someone else standing as the adjudicator of whether you can access your genetic data? If you have a reason to want it, would you want to have someone there saying whether or not they will permit it? It's interesting to me how these, um, how many areas of our lives have these parallel issues right now? Because uh, listening to this conversation, I'm reminded of the art of the, de the debate this week over face or the anger over Facebook saying they're not going to try and police lies in political ads on their platform. Mm -hmm. And there's a really interesting, mm -hmm. um, op-ed Stay with me, folks. Honestly, I, I am, I am going to draw this parallel, saying they, they're not going to please them because they can't. It's, it's, it's an impossible task to take on all of these um, somewhat subjective positions and determine in a way that people are happy with or is seen as satisfactorily neutral which ones are lies and which ones aren't. And his, this is of great import to society, both of these things are of great mm -hmm. import to society, and they both come from this, the difficulties that we're having with vast amounts of information suddenly available, and there's a way to convey it to people, but what there isn't is an easy solution for providing, providing expertise, 
stepping in and right. saying, this is what's good and this is what's bad. This is what, this is what's uh, useful and this is what's not useful. In this case, somebody's telling you the truth. In this case, somebody's not telling you the truth. And trying to scale up expertise is proving to be unbelievably hard, which, by the way, is somebody asked me the other day, like, what happens when genetics becomes more routinized? Like, what, what's the role of genetic counselors? And this is why I don't worry about us going out of fashion no. as a necessary part of this, no. this process. Um, so I'm on, I know there's one other thing that you want to talk about and we're running low on time. So I'm going to bring it to that, which is the challenges. Um, so I started off this saying the other goal of this project from the get go has been to establish a more diverse pool. And I know that that has been uh, one, something that you guys are very much behind and also, um, an interesting challenge in terms of the genetic counseling side of it. So do you want to talk to that a little bit? Uh, sure. So, um, right, like you said, this is another one of those baseline principles of the program is that this is going to be a diverse cohort um, from from multiple different, you know, kind of uh, definitions of diversity. So, you know, when we talk about diversity, yes, we mean, you know, race, ethnicity, ancestry. We also mean um, uh, sex and gender representation. We mean um, uh socioeconomic status, we mean geographical diversity. Um, you know, you can kind of think of all of, of all of these different ways that some people have been excluded from um, medical research in the past and therefore left out of the, you know, equal access to the benefits of medical research. Um, and so this was a core principle um, and something that all of the groups who are enrolling are thinking about every day how to make sure that we are reaching a truly diverse um, representation of people. And, you know, when, when we first were starting, um, I and I think others had a lot of concern that that would be a really, not just really hard, but that we might not actually be able to meet that goal. And, um, you know, everyone I hope everyone, especially listening to this podcast, knows that there have been historical injustices um, around clinical research um, with Tuskegee, with Henrietta Lacks, um, and and many other situations, unfortunately. Um, And so I think that people thinking like, well, there's no way that we are going to be able to actually get um, some of these underrepresented groups to participate in a large research program like this. And our experience has actually been very different. Um, we have, both in New York and across the country, um, have been very successful, actually, at enrolling people into research who have been underrepresented in research in the past. And, you know, I think that the difference um, is that this, we set out with this intention from the beginning, you know, so we didn't kind of recreate our usual clinical research enrollment processes and just cross our fingers and hope for the best that we would get a diverse cohort. We designed the approaches from the beginning um, to encourage that to happen. Um, 
and and so to me it's it's kind of been interesting to think about you know the the kind of accepted wisdom that people had beforehand which is that there's too much mistrust people are not going to enroll in this type of a program to the actual experience on the ground which is that if you you know plan for it if you hire people who are um you know familiar with the communities that you're trying to reach who are prepared to have those difficult and sometimes lengthy discussions around historical um, abuses in research to establish trust for this program um, and you know going to where people that want to recruit are not expecting them to come to you that it really is it really is possible. Um, I won't say that it's easy, but it certainly is, is possible. It's happening. It's happening. It's, you know, it's I'm absolutely really, happening. I'm really excited, in addition to the obvious benefits of, of, of improving the diversity in the databases, I'm very excited to see new information on working with this a population that looks like America, because I think a lot of our genetic counseling yeah. return of results, not all of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is on the early adopter, very motivated population, yeah. more educated, more motivated. So to see what genetic counseling for return of results for uh, positive findings in genomics is like in a population that looks more like America I think will be a tremendously, you know, valuable uh, addition. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, you know, I, I got to wait a while, right? I got to wait a while because you haven't started giving out the results yet. So <laughs> that's right. You have to wait a little while, but I mean, but but those lessons will be coming, right? I mean, genetic counseling and you know, medical genetics has has kind of been it has has. We've been working with one model, basically, um, and this is really going to open our eyes to a much wider variety of knowledge and and approaches for how to how to engage with people around their genetic information. Louise, I'm running out of time, and this has been so great. Maybe when you ah! have that, I know it went flew by. It did. I am. I and I. I. You know. I. I want to. You know, you'll you'll come back and tell us when you start the program starts giving back results. I'm very interested to hear about those first experiences, and definitely. And I'm I'm going to be doing some more shows shortly on on all of us and the the gearing up towards the genetic counseling. So it's a great subject, and I very much appreciate you taking time today and uh, uh, coming on and, and and giving this information to our audience. And I appreciate the audience being here, too. Thank you very much. Go to BeagleLanded.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher, all that stuff. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. And we're out. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.